Section 8 of Ways of Woodfolk. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ways of Woodfolk by William J. Long. Chapter 6. Part 2. All the beaver's cutting is done by chisel edged front teeth. There are two of these in each jaw, extending a good inch and a half outside the gums, and meeting at a sharp bevel. The inner sides of the teeth are softer and wear away faster than the outer, so that the bevel remains the same, and the action of the upper and lower teeth over each other keeps them always sharp. They grow so rapidly that a beaver must be constantly woodcutting to keep them worn down to comfortable size. Often on wild streams, you'll find a stick floating down to meet you, showing a fresh cut. You grab it, of course, and say, Somebody's camped above here. That stick has just been cut with a sharp knife. But look closer. See that faint ridge the whole length of the cut, as if the knife had a tiny gap in its edge? That is where the beaver's two upper teeth meet, and the edge is not quite perfect. He cut that stick, thicker than a man's thumb, at a single bite. To cut an alder, having the diameter of a teacup, is the work of a minute or the same tools, and a towering birch tree falls in a remarkably short time when attacked by three or four beavers. Around the stump of such a tree you find a pile of two-inch chips, thick, white, clean-cut, and arched to the curve of the beaver's teeth. Judge the workman by his chips, and this is a good workman. When the dam is built, the beaver cuts his winter food wood. A colony of the creatures will often fell a whole grove of young birch or poplar on the bank above the dam. The branches with the best bark are then cut into short lengths, which are rolled down the bank and floated to the pool at the dam. Considerable discussion has taken place as to how the beaver sinks his wood, for of course he must sink it, else it would freeze into the ice and be useless. One theory is that the beavers suck the air from each stick. Two witnesses declare to me they have seen them doing it, and in a natural history book of my childhood there's a picture of a beaver with the end of a three-foot stick in his mouth sucking the air out. Just as if the beavers didn't know better, even if the absurd thing were possible. The simplest way is to cut the wood early and leave it in the water a while when it sinks of itself, for green birch and poplar are almost as heavy as water. They soon get waterlogged and go to the bottom. It's almost impossible for the lumbermen to drive spool wood, birch, for this reason. If the nights grow suddenly cold before the wood sinks, the beavers take it down to the bottom and press it slightly into the mud, or else they push sticks under those that float against the dam and more under these and so on till the stream is full to the bottom the weight of those above keeping the others down much of the wood is lost in this way by being frozen into the ice but the beaver knows that and cuts plenty when a beaver is hungry in winter he comes down under the ice selects a stick and carries it up into his house and eats the bark then he carries the peel stick back under the ice and puts it aside out of the way. Once in winter it occurred to me that soaking spoiled the flavor of bark, and that the beavers might like a fresh bite. 
so i cut a hole in the ice on the pool above their dam of course the chopping scared the beavers it was vain to experiment that day i spread a blanket and some thick boughs over the hole to keep it from freezing over too thickly and went away next day i pushed the end of a freshly cut birch pole down among the beavers store lay down with my face to the hole after carefully cutting out the thin ice drew a big blanket round my head and the projecting end of the pole to shut out the light and watched for a while it was all dark as a pocket and then i began to see things dimly presently a darker shadow shot along the bottom and grabbed the pole it was a beaver with a twenty-dollar coat on he tugged i held on tight which surprised him so that he went back into his house to catch breath but the taste of fresh bark was in his mouth and soon he was back with another beaver both took hold this time and pulled together no use they began to swim around examining the queer pole on every side what kind of a stick are you anyway one was thinking you didn't grow here because i would have found you long ago and you're not frozen into the ice said the other because you wriggle then they both took hold again and i began to haul up carefully i wanted to see them nearer that surprised them immensely but i think they would have held on only for an accident the blanket slipped away a stream of light shot in there were two great whirls in the water and that was the end of the experiment they did not come back though i waited till i was almost frozen but i cut some fresh birch and pushed it under the ice to pay for my share in the entertainment the beaver's house is generally the last thing attended to he likes to build this when the nights grow cold enough to freeze his mortar soon after it's laid two or three tunnels are dug from the bottom of the beaver pond up through the bank coming to the surface together at the point where the center of the house is to be around this he lays solid foundations of log and stone in a circle from six to fifteen feet in diameter according to the number of beavers to occupy the house on these foundations he rears a thick mass of sticks and grass which are held together by plenty of mud the top is roofed by stout sticks arranged as in an indian wigwam and the whole is domed over with grass stones sticks and mud once this is solidly frozen the beaver sleeps in peace his house is burglar proof if on a lake shore where the rise of water is never great the beaver's house is four or five feet high on streams subject to freshets they may be two or three times that height as in the case of the musquash or muskrat a strange instinct guides the beaver as to the height of his dwelling he builds high or low according to his expectations of high or low water and he is rarely drowned out of his dry nest sometimes two or three families unite to build a single large house but always in such cases each family has its separate apartment when a house is dug open it is evident from the different impressions that each member of the family has his own bed which he always occupies beavers are exemplary in their neatness the house after five months use is as neat as when first made all their building is primarily a matter of instinct for a tame beaver builds miniature dams and houses on the floor of his cage still it's not an uncontrollable instinct 
like that of most birds, nor blind, like that of rats and squirrels at times. I have found beaver houses on lake shores where no dam was, built simply because the water was deep enough and none was needed. In vacation time the young beavers build for fun, just as boys build a dam whenever they can find running water. I am persuaded also, and this may explain some of the dams that seem stupidly placed, that at times the old beavers set the young to work in summer, in order that they may know how to build when it becomes necessary. This is a hard theory to prove, for the beavers work by night, preferably on dark rainy nights when they are safest on land to gather materials. But while building is instinctive, skillful building is the result of practice and experience, and some of the beaver dams show wonderful skill. There is one beaver that never builds, never troubles himself about house or dam or winter store. I'm not sure whether we ought to call him the genius or the lazy man of the family. The bank beaver is a solitary old bachelor living in a den like a mink in the bank of a stream. He does not build a house because a den under a cedar's roots is as safe and warm. He never builds a dam because there are deep places in the river where the current is too swift to freeze. He finds tender twigs much juicier even in winter than stale bark stored under water. As for his tell-tale tracks in the snow, his wits must guard him against enemies, and there is the open stretch of river to flee to. There are two theories among Indians and trappers to account for the bank beaver's eccentricities. The first is that he has failed to find a mate and leaves the colony, or is driven out, to lead a lonely bachelor life. His conduct during the mating season certainly favors this theory, for never was anybody more diligent in his search for a wife than he. Up and down the streams and alder brooks of a whole wide countryside he wanders without rest, stopping here and there on a grassy point to gather a little handful of mud, like a child's mud pie, all padded smooth, in the midst of which is a little strong-smelling musk. When you find that sign, in a circle of carefully trimmed grass under the alders, you know that there is a young beaver on that stream looking for a wife. And when the young beaver finds his pie opened and closed again, he knows that there is a mate there somewhere waiting for him. But the poor bank beaver never finds his mate, and the next winter must go back to his solitary den. He is much more easily caught than other beavers, and the trappers say it's because he is lonely and tired of life. The second theory is that generally held by Indians. They say the bank beaver is lazy and refuses to work with the others, so they drive him out. When beavers are busy, they are very busy and tolerate no loafing. Perhaps he even tries to persuade them that all their work is unnecessary and so shares the fate of reformers in general. While examining the den of a bank beaver last summer, another theory suggested itself. Is not this one of the rare animals in which all the instincts of his kind are lacking? He does not build because he has no impulse to build. He does not know how. So he represents what the beaver was thousands of years ago before he learned how to construct his dam and house, reappearing now by some strange freak of heredity and finding himself woefully out of place and time. 
The other beavers drive him away, because all gregarious animals and birds have a strong fear and dislike of any irregularity in their kind. Even when the peculiarity is slight, a wound or a deformity, they drive the poor victim from their mist, remorselessly. It's a cruel instinct, but part of one of the oldest in creation, the instinct which preserves the species. This explains why the bank beaver never finds a mate. None of the beavers will have anything to do with him. This occasional lack of instinct is not peculiar to the beavers. Now and then a bird is hatched here in the north that has no impulse to migrate. He cries after his departing comrades, but never follows, and so he remains and is lost in the storms of winter. There are few creatures in the wilderness more difficult to observe than the beavers, both on account of their extreme shyness and because they work only by night. The best way to get a glimpse of them at work is to make a break in their dam and pull the top from one of their houses some autumn afternoon at the time of full moon, just before twilight. You must steal back and hide some distance from the dam. Even then the chances are against you, for the beavers are suspicious, keen of ear and nose, and generally refuse to show themselves till after the moon sets or you have gone away. You may have to break their dam a half dozen times and freeze as often before you see it repaired. It is a most interesting sight when it comes at last, and well repays the watching. The water is pouring through a five-foot break in the dam. The roof of a house is in ruins. You have rubbed yourself all over with fir boughs to destroy some of the scent in your clothes and hidden yourself in the top of a fallen tree. The twilight goes. The moon wheels over the eastern spruces, flooding the river with silver light. Still no sign of life. You're beginning to think of another disappointment, to think your toes cannot stand the cold another minute without stamping, which would spoil everything. When a ripple shoots swiftly across the pool, and a big beaver comes out on the bank. He sits up a moment looking, listening then goes to the broken house and sits up again looking it all over estimating damages making plans there's the commotion in the water three others join him you are warm now meanwhile three or four more are swimming about the dam surveying the damage there one dives to the bottom but comes up in a moment to report all safe below another is tugging at a thick pole just below you Slowly he tows it out in front, balances a moment and lets it go, good, squarely across the break. Two others are cutting alders above, and here comes the bushes floating down. Over at the damaged house, two beavers are up on the walls, raising the rafters into place. A third appears to be laying on the outer covering and plastering it with mud. Now and then one sits up straight like a rabbit, listens, stretches his back to get the kinks out, and then drops to his work again. It is brighter now. Moon and stars are glimmering in the pool. At the dam, the sound of falling water grows faint as the break is rapidly closed. The houses loom larger. Over the dome of the one broken, the dark outline of a beaver passes triumphantly. Quick work, that. You grow more interested. You stretch your neck to see. Splash! 
a beaver gliding past has seen you as he dives he gives the water a sharp blow with his broad tail the danger signal of the beavers and a startling one in the dead stillness there is a sound as of a stick being plunged end first into the water a few eddies go running about the pool breaking up the moon's reflection and then silence again and the lap of ripples on the shore you can go home now you will see nothing more tonight there's a beaver over under the other bank in the shadow where you cannot see him just his eyes and ears above the water watching you he will not stir nor will another beaver come out till you go away as you find your canoe and paddle back to camp a ripple made by a beaver's nose follows silently in the shadow of the alders at the bend of the river where you disappear the ripple halts a while like a projecting stub in the current then turns and goes swiftly back there is another splash the builders come out again a dozen ripples are scattering star reflections all over the pool while the little wood folk pause a moment to look at the new works curiously and then go their ways shy silent industrious through the wilderness night end of section eight